You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Aprom Kipolevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. The Pesach is Shemot Laman Aleph Yud Chet, and it reads as follows, Vayitain El Moshe, so he gave to Moshe, Kechaloto Dabirito Bahar Sinai, so we're going to translate Kechaloto literally now, meaning as uh, at the end, right, at the end, it doesn't say, Bechaloto, it says Kechaloto, so you can try and uh, Right, decide whether you think the Kim is approximately as opposed to precisely. Uh, when he finishes speaking with him um, at, at Har Sinai, and he gives him the the two uh, with a description of what they are. They're made of rock and they're ketubim etzba Elohim, Elohim, whichever we want, right? A powerful etzba, a divine etzba. That's the image which is also drawn in the Makos when the Khartubim say the paro etzba Elohim he. Okay. We're not interested this week in the description of the Luchot. What we're interested in is this claim of um, some kind of temporal connection, chronological connection, that the Luchot are given to Moshe at roughly at the time that God finishes Lidaber Ito, or that, they, that God and Moshe finish speaking with each other. So when is that time? Okay, when is that time? When does God, right? When is the time that Moshe gets the Luchot, which is at the end of, of God and Moshe um, speaking? So Hashem Melakish uh, right, says the following, and he just basically, uh, he undermines the whole temporal connection by translating Kechaloto, not as uh, not as when it finishes. So Mara Bishun Ben Lakish, anybody who finds the Vrei Torah, uh, or anybody who says, Motzei Divrei Torah, so somebody who, uh, who, sp- who speaks out Divrei Torah, and the words that you say to your audience are not as pleasing to your audience as a bride is to a groom, it would have been better not to say them. This is one of those very scary things to open a share with, right? Because maybe I should stop talking, right? You have to tell me whether you find my, my words um, that, uh, that attractive or not. Um, right, Lama. So why, where do we get this idea that you should only say Devere Torah if your audience really appreciates them that profoundly, because in the time when Hashem gave the Torah to the Jews, the Jews found the, the Jews found the original giving of the Torah. They, the Jews, um, were as attracted to the Torah as right as right, as the uh, as a groom as a groom at, uh, at a wedding, and therefore, since we want every teaching of Torah to be a recreation of the original Matan Torah, therefore, you should be very careful that you only teach Torah. To a, a highly uh, highly appreciative audience. How do we get that? We translate as kichalato. So he gave them right. So he gave them the luchot to Moshe, like as if he were giving them to his kala. Okay. Um, so this, first of all, right, this is doesn't fit very well in the pasuk as a whole because it doesn't say Can you translate the whole pasuk that he gave it to Moshe like a bride to speak with him? Not so great. Uh, secondly. Um, he gave it to Moshe. He didn't give it to Bnei Yisrael, right? In Roshim and Lakish's um, analogy, the, right, the the Baal is uh, the Baal is the Jewish people, and the Torah is the bride, uh, right? So that's an interesting interesting use of the marriage metaphor. Um, but really, in the story, it's Moshe. So that's right. That's also right. We could we could spend time if we were doing the midrash in its own terms. We could feel that as well. I'm interested in two things, right? One is the he translates Kichalato not as at the finish. So that could just be that he's doing what Midrash does, which is we talked about, um, I think last week also, that Midrash 
believes you have to you have to interpret the harmonics and not just the not just the melody. And so your misunderstandings, especially those that are driven by an unvocalized text, because there's no vov for kichaloto. So you could, if you just read it, you would read it as kichaloto. So the metrics is just taking advantage of the harmonic and translating it as kala. It doesn't mean kala bride as opposed to at the end of it. Just means in addition to. That's very reasonable. That's one thing to get out of it, right? So it could be that it's doing this because it has difficulty with the timing, or it could be that it's doing it just because it, it thinks that there are multiple meanings. And the second thing is to talk about so who is what who is the bride and who is the groom. So in the verse, it has to be that Moshe is the groom and the luchot are the bride. But in the um, but in the um, in the um, in the analogy, it's the uh, it's obviously the um, the right, B'nai Yisrael, B'nai Yisrael are the groom and the Torah is the bride. So let's take the next one, which is also in the name of Roshim Bar Lakish. Amar Rilevi, Amar Roshim Bar Lakish. Ma'kalazu mekushetet betrim verba'a minek tachshitin. So just like brides apparently went through a regimen um, even more comprehensive than Megillah Esther specifically, where there are 24 different kinds of, uh, of um, cosmetics. Kach tamid chacham tzarich liyot zariz betrim verba'a svarim. So the analogy is drawn between scholars and a bride and just like and sc scholars are supposed to know all of Tanakh, all 24 strong of Tanakh the way that a bride has these 24 which must have been on some kind of entered magazine list of uh, these 24 kinds of cosmetics uh, and that's what Kichalato means, he gave it to Moshe Kichalato so now I have to figure out, okay, who is the bride and who is the groom, so the Talmud Chacham is the bride and Torah is now the cosmetics right, so Rishlakish's Rish Rish first version is that the, the Moshe or the Jewish people are, are the are the groom and the Torah is the bride. Now the now the bride is the the bride is our scholar. The, the brides are scholars, and the um, and the, the Torah is a cosmetic, and the groom has shifted out of the picture. We don't know who the groom uh, we don't know who the groom is at all. Um, so what interests me, aside from the intrinsic interest of that of that claim and of who plays what, is that. Even if you interpret kichaloto as meaning kala, so there's a grammatical uh, ambiguity, right? One interpretation is he gave the Torah to Moshe as he would give Moshe, um, as he as he gave he gave the, he gave the, the Torah to Moshe as he would give a kala to Moshe, and the other is he gave the Torah to Moshe as he would give cosmetics to a kala, right? So you understand that there. are there are, grammatic, there are grammatical ambiguities as to the relationship between Moshe and the term kichaloto, and I want to pick up on that towards the end of this year. Okay, then, um, and I'm quoting the Midrash of Midrash Rabbah, although not in the order they're presented in Midrash Rabbah. So now Rabbi Abba says, all 40 days that Moshe Rabbeinu was, was, was on top of the mountain, he was learning Torah and forgetting it. And he said to the Rabbi Shalom, 40 days, and I don't remember anything. Uh, so what does God do? Right, so after the 40 days, God looks at Moshe and says, you're right, you're not remembering anything. So he stops trying to teach it to Moshe, and he just gives it to Moshe. Right, when he gives it to Moshe as opposed to teaching it to Moshe, and so this is a drash on the word vayitain. But it's possible that it's also a drash on the word which does mean when he finishes, meaning when he'd given up, when he'd given up teaching Moshe the Torah. That's what Kichalotol Daberito meant, right? He spent 40 days, he spent 40 days and 40 nights, right? So we were locating, right? He gives Moshe the Luchot just before Moshe goes down at some point. And 
Then we have the, the, the obvious question, so why does it take 40 days and 40 nights for him to give him the Torah? And the answer is, he tries for 40 days and 40 nights to teach Moshe the Torah, but then when he, gives, when he gives up teaching him, he just gives Moshe the Torah, and Moshe gets the Torah as a gift. Okay, then there's another way of, of um, another midrash that also explains by Yitana Moshe in a particular way, maybe related, maybe not. The Chikala Torah, Laman Moshe, that Moshe learned the entire Torah. It, we have, the Torah itself describe, or describes itself as wide and right, wider than the earth and deeper than the sea. So how could Moshe in 40 days have learned the entire Torah? Forget the Moshe who didn't remember anything. Even if Moshe remembered everything, how could he possibly, how could God teach him everything in 40 days? So you can say, look, obviously, as some Rishadim say, like, this is a silly question. God can do anything. He can teach you in 40 days. Okay, can human beings learn everything in 40 days? Okay, Moshe Rabbeinu is unique. Whatever. But this message is bothered by that question. And his answer is, uh, which has real implications, is, Ella kolim So God taught, the Mo- taught Moshe the Torah not in, um, not in detail. He taught it to him in general rules. And this is a nupshat in the word kichaloto, not like a bride, and not when he finishes, but as right, kal becomes a rule as a panam klal, he taught it to him in principles, and therefore the, what we're doing in the future, right, even though we, there are things in Torah that Moshe Rabbeinu was never taught specifically, he was only taught them, uh, he was only taught them generally. That's a pretty radical claim. Um, and it's Built to some extent on the notion, I think, is also Pshana Kichalotol de Berito, not just that it's that it's principles as opposed to specifics, but it also means like if God has to teach Moshe the entire Torah in detail, how could he ever finish? Right? The Torah is infinite, and so God should have kept Moshe on the mountain forever. Um, so I think this midrash is, in, is to some extent also a drasha on like how could it be that Moshe there's a time there's a, there's a place at which God speaks to Moshe and gives him the Torah. So the most radical way of saying it would be, you know what, God didn't teach Moshe the entire Torah. He taught him part of it. It was enough to send him down. And then he taught him the rest later. That we have to figure out why does he teach him these things and not other things. But in this case, what he, the, the, the answer is that anything, right, even in an infinite, an infinite series can be, um, can be contained in a finite series of rules. So God teaches Moshe the infinite Torah in a finite series of rules, if you're comfortable saying that the Torah can be reduced to a finite set of rules. Um, for our purposes, you know, the key thing is that here again, you have this discomfort with Kichalato literally meaning uh, when he stopped. And the answer here is not, so, the, the reason for the discomfort here is not so much the chronology as that it didn't really happen when he stopped talking as, well, what sense would it be to say that there's a point at which God stops teaching, um, teaching Moshe Torah? But there's another midrash that seems to lean into this notion. So the berito, so milamechei Moshe shomei avipiagvura v'chosrim v'shonim et halachash tehem yachad. Now we're talking about pedagogy, right? So what does the berito mean? It means that Moshe would hear what God said, and then after after Rebbeinu Shalom said it to Moshe, then they would repeat it together, right? This is good old-fashioned pedagogy. And right, that's the original version. But then Rashi and Lakish sharpens it. He says, "What does the berito mean?" It's in, here's a mashal. There's a there's a there's a teacher learning from the um, teacher learning from learning from the student. At, right at the very beginning, when the when the teacher when the student hasn't learned it, then the, the teacher says it and the student repeats it. But once the student gets it, right then Amir Lorabo, the teacher says to him, "Bov niva ata." Let's say it together. Right, it's a different kind of pedagogy, as opposed to um, right. It's not that we say it. Right, we say everything and then we learn it and then we repeat it. 
um, right? The sharpening is that there's a progression in the student. So too, Moshe Rabbeinu, when he goes up to Shemayim, first he repeats the Torah after God. And then once he learns it, then God says to him, So this is another attempt to explain what changes, like what's Kechalatol Daberito. So Kechalatol Daberito means that God doesn't stop with Moshe until the point where they reach the stage where it's the Daberito as opposed to the Daberi Lav. Right? God doesn't just teach it to Moshe and then the conversation is over. Whatever happens in the 40 days and 40 nights has to be a finishing. And the finishing is, it's the stage at which Moshe Rabbeinu has repeated the Torah together with God, as opposed to just heard it from God. Um, so Shinshin Rafal Hirsch takes this, uh, what I think is, he learns what I think is Peshat in the Midrash. Um, and what he says is, Ulam, right, um, in the very beginning, when, when the, the mitzvahs of God are called Dibur El Moshe, they're called speaking to Moshe, and Moshe's job was Besheva Al Tasa, was passive, the Kabel Bulikot, to right to receive and to um, and to retain. Um, but now, Kichalato, before the end of Matan Torah, Moshe has already absorbed the Torah well, as Rish, and he quotes Rish, as he quotes Rish Lakish's. Hainu, what does that mean? Sheata Moshe Choser Vidan Binyan Beofen Pa'il. Now Moshe studies the topic and evaluates issues. Uh, in an active manner, biyachat im Hashem. Right, so right, so reverse says that the Torah, right, God doesn't give Moshe the luchot until Moshe already has ownership of the Torah, intellectually that he's capable of, he's capable of thinking about it, uh, thinking about it independently, and he's in a conversation with God, as opposed to a, um, as opposed to in a, uh, as opposed to just as a passive absorber. So this is also an attempt to explain kichaloto. Um, right, but it's not so great because Kichalato the Berito, right? Really, what, he, what we wanted to say is that when he was done, so that they were speaking together, and not when he was done speaking together. So there's a tension here, right? The right, right? It's certainly right that the Berito is not the same thing as the Beri Love, and it sounds like it's uh, a reasonable interpretation of the Berito is speaking with him as opposed to speaking to him. But what does it mean? But it, it's there's no. It's not really a good explanation of what, why God is finished speaking with him now. Really, God is never going to be finished speaking with him because now they're in permanent conversation about Torah. Uh, and why would you give the luch? Right? And there's a sort of anticlimax in God giving Moshe the luchot after he's already learned it all. All right. So what are the luchot for if Moshe already absorbed everything? Right? So I think there are weaknesses in the midrash, but I think our first gets the midrash really right. Okay. We have a whole bunch of interpretations of Chaloto. Right, it might mean like a bride. Even if it's a bride, there's a grammatical ambiguity as to who the bride is, and, and uh, right, is is there a groom and what the Torah right, and uh, what the Torah is? Then we have the possibility that it means when he finished, but there's some difficulties grammatically trying to figure out exactly what he finishes, and we're not actually really satisfied uh, satisfied by it. We have the idea that we also have the idea that kechalato means klalim. Right, lots of difficulties interpreting what seems to be a fairly straightforward verse. Now we get to the heart of the what I think is the heart of the issue. So some anonymous Rabbanin say, Had the Jews done that deed, now what does that deed mean? That deed means a golden calf. Had the Jews done that deed before God gave the Luchot to Moshe, then Moshe would never have, the Luchot would never have gone down to Moshe, with Moshe, right? He wouldn't have the dramatic scene of Moshe breaking them. They would, the Luchot would still be in Shemayim. So this scene, okay, what the Rebbe says, this scene 
when it says God gave it to Moshe when he finished speaking with Moshe, that scene has to take place before the Egel Azahav, which is fine because Egel Azahav takes place in the next parrot. So that's a, that just basically tells you the Torah is in chronological order from now, perhaps, or at least those two scenes, the giving of the Luchot and the Egel are in chronological order, although we don't know what happened before or whether anything happens in between. Relevi comes up with a radical claim. He says, no, the Luchot were given by God to Moshe after the Egel Azahav. Right, he gave it to Moshe when he finished speaking with him. So, right, Relevi says, I don't, there's no way you can say that God finishes speaking with Moshe uh, before the Egel happens. Why is that? Because, as we'll see, when the Egel happens, God tells Moshe about it. And when God tells Moshe about it, Moshe and God have a conversation. So how can you say that God gave Moshe the Luchot before the Egel, and when he finished speaking with him, the, right, when God tells him about the Egel, a whole conversation happens, and Moshe hasn't gone down yet. So, he, right, so Rabbi Levi really right, addresses the chronological problem directly, and he says there is an incoherence in the story chronologically, how can we say it's when he's finished speaking with him when we know that God and Moshe will have a conversation between between the time that the eagle happens and the time that uh, and the time that that God gives Moshe the luchot? Okay, we have to do so, it. Okay. the very toe. Ryan Clapper. So, can you say that the Rabbanan then are specifically understanding it as? The Daber Ito is specifically the, the, the teacher and student discussion of Torah, as opposed to kind of the wrap up sending Moshe down. And by the way, Moshe, when you go down, things are on fire. So, yeah, right. That's right. We'll, have, we'll have to say some, we'll have to say something of the sort of claiming that the conversation that takes, the conversation that takes place about the ego is a different kind of conversation a different kind of God speaking with Moshe than happened previously. And so we can say it's when he finished that conversation and the fact that there's another conversation afterwards is irrelevant, right? Your, your, your suggestion is, right, if we pull, pull in that measure, is that when they finish studying Torah together in that particular way, right, so that gets you with that very toe, I'm not sure that's the best way to do it. We'll, we'll see. But that's fundamentally we have to claim, is that the Rabbanian the have the advantage of Saying that these episodes are in chronological order, we'll see how big an advantage that is. And Rabbi Levi has the advantage of saying, right, of the saying that there actually is a cessation of, of, uh, right, of 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 speech between Moshe and God, uh, which there's no way, there's no way that the Rabbana can say, um, prima facie, there's no way that the Rabbana can say that God and Moshe really finished speaking to each other, even even for the short term. At the time that God gave Moshe, so let's see how the Mefarshim let's see how the try and make these distinct conversations. Rashi says, Rashi says it's when God finishes speaking with Moshe, the the conversation about Parshat Mishpatim. Okay, that's really interesting, right? So Rashi says at the end of the, the, all the stuff about Parshat Mishpatim, but we're in Parshat Kisisa. So Parsha's true men to Sabbath, according to Rashi, not happens. So Rashi, in one hand, he's keeping it in chronological order, I guess. 
So they're very great because God finishes speaking with Parshish Mishpatim to him. He gives Moshe the Luchot. And then the eagle happens. That's great. But what about Parshish Truma and Tzabah? Right? That's a very pretty radical claim that Rashi says that we're going back, all the way back there. Uh, we're going to see in a moment, right, how, why, how and why people do this. But just realize, right, why I'm trying introducing Rashi to realize that, uh, hang on a sec, right, that even the people who think we're going in order are not really going in order. Because Rashi skips two parshas in between that seem to, that seem to take, right, it, it seems that we had Mishpatim, and we finished Parshas Mishpatim, and then we get the Truma Tetzaveh, and they're at, right, and then we have a flashback to the end of Mishpatim, so why do we do that? Okay, Refersh tries to stop, to remove that problem in Rashi, so the Beitein Moshe, um, see, actually, so first thing Rafi refers to is a really interesting point, which I think we have to address. He says, Hang on a sec. If you look at the beginning of the Pasuk, the beginning of the Pasuk says, Vayitain el Moshe. Who gave to Moshe? You might think, ah, it must be the previous Pasuk, where it had God as a subject, and so Vayitain el Moshe. Must be right, just assuming the, the implicit subject of the previous person. But Rehearsh tells you no, that's not the case. Uh, right, Rehearsh says that Hanusayshal Pasuk, the right, the subject of this verse, Hashem, a nobus karma for Rosh is not explicit. Ella, um, sorry, Ella, but they came to me, me, Parsha, who demetri, let me smash up a cigarette, or he does it, or he says it really comes from the previous Parsha, and therefore, Rehearsh, we'll see if that's if that's compelling or not. And therefore, first says, therefore, you get the idea that the giving of the Luchot is not something that is an independent scene that was going on, in, right? That at some point, God just stands up and says, Here, Moshe, take the Luchot. It's connected from what happened previously. Rather, it's the conclusion of everything that happened previously. Everything that happened before the, before the giving of the Luchot. Um, as, as the necessary introduction, uh, right, the sine qua non for the giving of Luchot, right, therefore he says, the whole purpose of the Mishkan, right, this is a, a, a Joshi dispute later, right, in the same way that there's a dispute in Bereshus about whether the world is created for human beings, and that's why it's that order, or whether uh, uh, whether human beings are um, are just the capstone of the creation of the world. So he says, right, the purpose of the Mishkan is to house the Luchot, and right, it's not the, the Luchot or the capstone of the Mishkan, but the Mishkan exists only for the sake of Luchot. And right, and it refers to his classic thing he says, and right, and the really beautiful thing about the Mishkan is that every right is that other right other religions of the time have as their centerpiece is the image uh, is the image of um, what God looks like, and what we have is the image with Luchot of what human beings are supposed to be. Right, so the center of our religion. Is an image of humanity, not an image, right? Not an image, not an image of God, and a, a statement of what God wants for humanity, not uh, not for human beings, just to um, just to adore. Okay, that's that, that's Rafershlish uh, What interests me is his claim. Uh, Rafersh is saying is we're going to read it like Rashi, the Kikalatol, the very toe, and it, without the midrash, the specific midrash, but the way that Marty read it, it has to be that Kikalatol, the very toe, means when God finished teaching Moshe. Torah content, but Rafersh goes away from Rashi because Rashi says only Parshas Mishpatim. I figure why does Rashi do that? Rafersh says no, it means Parshas Mishpatim and Shumantet Sabbath. And that God has to tell Moshe all that before Moshe can get to the Torah. 
Okay. I'm not going to evaluate that theologically now. I just wanted to put all those literary options out now so we can, right? So we know that literary to can mean when he finishes teaching in Parshat Mishpatim. It can mean when he finishes teaching in Parshat Mishpatim and Truman Tisavet. Or it can mean when he finishes the conversation after the Egel Azahab. Let's see how all these things play out literally. Okay, so let's start um, by taking a look at Paragon event. Remember, this is, this is, uh, right, we, the part, the, the um, pasuk we read is the last pasuk of Paraglam and Aleph. So here's what follows it, right? So it gives Moshe the Luchot. And so now there's an immediate shift back which makes the chronology uh, more plausible because, right, we, the, right, God gives Moshe the Luchot and we think that's the end of the 40 days and 40 nights, although it doesn't say so explicitly. It just says he finished speaking with him, so we can say that he finished speaking with him on day 39. Uh, or, right, or, but the scene shifts now, Paraglam event from from heaven to earth, right? So now, where we have Moshe is up in Shemayim, and the people see that Moshe is late, and they demand from Aaron, they say, Aaron, you know, make us a make us a god because Moshe is gone. And Aaron tells them, show me the jewelry, and they do. And Aaron makes an eagle, and everything goes right. Everything everything goes wrong, and that's the end of the scene, right? And now they wake up the next day, right? So this right, so this scene takes place on Earth. There's an overnight scene. The people see that. Moshe is late. They demand Aaron makes them a god. In some way, they go out his form. They wake up the next morning. Okay, now that's the end of the that's the end of the scene on Earth. And now we go back to heaven, and God says to Moshe, "Lechreid." Here's our first real ambiguity. Does God say to Moshe, "Lechreid"? Is that after he gave the luchot, and now he speaks to him again, or do we say, "No, hang on a second"? Moshe. So obviously. Right, this has to be part of the prequel. Right, we go back to what happened on Earth before God gave Moshe the Luchot. Right, if we're taking that position that the eagle takes place before the Luchot, the Jerubi Levi, and then having gone back, having gone back in time before the on Earth before that scene, we go back to what happened in heaven before the scene. All right, or is this the next sequel? Right, that's that's the the ambiguity everybody has. Right, the Bereshit and Moshe, but it's not problematic to say that it's a flashback because the previous chapter. All right, went back on Earth, so we, there's nothing unreasonable about saying that the timelines of the narrative of heaven and the narrative of Earth, right, jump back and forth um, because there's no way to have them happen exactly in heaven. Right, you, you can't, the Torah doesn't, doesn't exist in parallel columns. You can track what happens in heaven and Earth simultaneously. Okay, so God says the Moshe go down, right, because the Jews have done this terrible thing. Um, and that's the end, right, and that's, right, and that's all, right, that's scene one. Then we have a new thing, right? After God tells Moshe what terrible, and he says, go down. Then God probably shifts from Vayomer to Vayidaber. You have to decide whether that's significant, whether Vayomer, right, whether Kichalotol, the very toe, can't be talking about the scene that happened with Yomer. You also have to ask yourself whether Kichalotol, the very toe, can't be talking about things of Vayidaber Hashem El. Right? Both of these are reasons to say that this is not the conversation referred to in the Pasuk, because the, either the verb or the, um, right, or the, um, Indirect, uh, in, indirect prepositions. Sorry, I'm blanking. The relative pronoun is um, is um, I'm not getting the right word. Is um, preposition. The preposition is um, right. Is wrong. God says to Moshe, "I have seen these people in their Amshayora, and now leave me be. Okay, and I'll and I'll wipe them out, and make you a great nation. And then we have the scene, right? You all know from uh, right from uh, from Lane, right, Lane so often on Tanit Sibur, um, Moshe. Uh, pleads with God, and he, right, and he 
convinces God, right? He says to God, right? What will he try and say, though, right? Remember Abraham's and Yaakov, the whole speech. And Hashem changes his mind. And then Moshe goes in. Right? So it's very tempting to say, as Rabbi Levi says, that look, here, for the first time, we have a conversation. Right? Hashem talked to Moshe, and it says, maybe that's already for that. And, his, and what he says to Moshe is taken correct by Moshe as an invitation to respond. And then Moshe talks to God, and then God changes his mind. Right? So it's perfectly reasonable to say this paragraph is the Dibur that the uh, that precedes Luchot, and God gives Moshe the Luchot immediately after the Egel of the Havs, so that raises the question, right? And uh, really, what God is saying here is, it, right, he's, he's saying is, leave me alone, I'll destroy them, and I'll give you the, right, and I, I'll give you the Luchot yourself, or if I don't give the Luchot them, however you want to play it out. And afterwards, he gives he gives Moshe the Luchot for B'nai Israel, maybe, or it could be that, you know, in the end, Moshe doesn't give it to Israel either, right? So we have to, we're, we're trying to figure out what this means. We have to figure out why it matters that God gives Moshe the Luchot anyway, even if Moshe doesn't bring the Luchot to B'nai Israel. And that will play into the difficulty in the Nishash we said earlier about um, who, the, right, who the groom is who receives the, uh, the Torah as a Kala. Okay, right, so we understand perfectly well the claim that, uh, we understand that the claim that the Luchot that are given before the Egel Gav has to somehow mean that there's a difference between Torah conversation and this conversation. Uh, this conversation happens sequentially, and this whole scene seems to happen sequentially. Uh, right? Maybe, right? Maybe if, if really they could work, right, this whole diet, the whole scene in which the people first go to Aaron, not just the making of the ego, but the whole impatience, all that has to happen with Moshe already having the Luchot. Then the question is, why doesn't Moshe go down immediately? Uh, right? Why is that God gives him, that God waits to give him the Torah until after the Egel Azav already made, does he wait to give him the Torah while the, uh, while the people wake up in the morning? Or, right? We don't know, right? The next scene tells that Moshe goes down. We don't know whether Moshe starts down the mountain at night before they make the Egel Azav, after the, well, they read at night after they make the Egel Azav, or in the morning when they read, or even after the party in the morning. We don't know about that, but we know our options are the Torah conversation ended or the Egel Azav conversation Moshe goes down the mountain, he gets there, right? Um, he asked he asked Aaron what happened. Uh, Aaron gives him his description. Okay, Moshe stands and he says, Mila Shani Lai, and there's the in the civil war, although it's not clear anyone resists the Levium. And that is the day after again. Okay, So Moshe gets up in the morning and he tells them, You've you right, you've sinned a great sin. And then God then Moshe goes and has another conversation with God. And Moshe goes back to God and he says, they have sinned a great sin, and God says, right, and wipe me out if you're going to wipe them out, and God forgives him, and then, right, then bad things happen. It could be, right, the problem we have is saying, the very toe took place um, over here, is that this doesn't finish the conversation either, right? Also seems like a uh, just a preliminary conversation, because Moshe has to come back and talk to God about the ego. Over here, he goes back up the mountain. So it might be that the reason you don't like to spread and Pretty much nobody thinks you could postpone the Luchot to the second time, to after the second time Moshe goes down. You can't because the whole, before Moshe goes down, um, goes up goes up the second time, he comes down the first time, and he's carrying the Luchot and he breaks them. So reason to not let, not say that, uh, oh, right, it looks really good that the very toe means the conversation about the ego is that that's not the end of the conversation either. So that can't be Yichal told the very toe. 
Um, right, that conversation, right, because that's not the end of the conversation either. It's just a break, right? Let's just I'll go down, and then Moshe comes back. Okay. Problem all the way through. Okay, so now we're going to take, take, take a little bit of a look at how the um, Rishonim addressed this issue. Rashi, saying a lot of what he said earlier, says, The Torah is not in any, uh, any order at all. The ego came before the Mishkan many days. And Rashi gives you his timeline. It says the ego has to come before the Sibir for the Mishkan, and therefore, uh, Parshat Trim and Tetzave have to be after all of this, and you have to bear your own explanation, uh, your own explanation as, to how that, uh, as to how that plays out. Um, and Ezra says something really interesting. He says, The Tam Kichol Kol Devirito, so the Ezra takes what we had. Rashi, who said it goes back to Parshat Mishpatim, uh, refers to it, says it's everything from everything from Matan Torah on. And Ibn Ezra leaves out Parshat Mishpatim. And he says it's only talking about the Mishkan. And then he puts in something that uh, we've all forgotten about now. He says, also, God tells him about Shabbos. So I'll have to take a look and see right, what is Shabbos doing in here. Okay, so where do people get these ideas? Um, so if you take a look at the end of Parshat Mishpatim, so even though Parshat Mishpatim, right, we know all, right, most of Parshat Mishpatim is just a list of laws that seem to come out of nowhere, Ben-Yelah Mishpatim, right, we talked about that in Parshat Mishpatim, the end of Parshat Mishpatim says that God said to Moshe, go up on the mountain, and the last passage of Parshat Mishpatim is, Moshe enters the Anan, and he goes up the mountain, and Moshe is on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. Okay, so it turns out there's a chronological, there's a chronological issue all the way through. Parshat Mishpatim ends by saying Moshe went up and stayed on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. Now, what did he do for 40 days and 40 nights? So the easiest answer is, and this is what Ebezer says, is that after Parshat Mishpatim, Moshe spends 40 days and 40 nights learning about the Mishkan, which is Parshat Truma and Tisavim. Um, And then, right, and then at the end of those 40 days, God gives Moshe the Luchot, and uh, right, and he comes down. The only problem is that it's a little bit messy because God also tells him the beginning of Parsha Kisisa. So we could say that's right. That's also part of that the maintenance of the Mishkan in some way. And he also tells about Shabbos. So we'll say, okay, Shabbos and Mishkan are intimately related. So we understand how Ezra gets that. That's Kichalotol Deberito. The end of Parsha Mishpatim says Moshe goes up on the mountain, and um, and God talks to him for a while, and then he finishes. And you understand how Rashi has to say because Rashi actually thinks that this the end of Parsha Mishpatim happens before the beginning of it. Because it's in those four days and four nights that, ha- that are described in the last sentence of Parsha Mishpatim that God tells Moshe about the rest of Parsha Mishpatim. Okay, so what really happens just before, however, right? If they were just if it were just in Mishkan, life would be great in if it had a So what really happens in the part in Beginning of Parakhamah is first, God tells Moshe about about um, about creating the Mishkan, and then there's this long thing about the Mishkan, right? You speak to the Israel, keep Shabbos, because Shabbos is an Ot Shabbos is a really important proof, and we have right and keep Shabbos because we don't keep Shabbos, right? People keep Shabbos die or get curries. Do work for six days, and the Shabbos is Kodesh. And Israel, right? Then, right, 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 the more famous Sukkim, right? The Shabbat, 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 the Sh
where Shabbat and the Mishkan are intimately connected, and all the language of the construction of the Mishkan, right? It's pretty clear that the Mishkan is a is a microcosm, and the construction of the, and, the, and it represents the world, and so the Mishkan has to be related to to Shabbos and the creation of the world that way. But the specific description of Shabbos here does not relate to the Mishkan at all in any way directly. It uses all sorts of other language, and the key language it uses, I think, is Ot, right? Right? It's a permanent oath between you. That language shows up here, and then it shows up again. Over here we have the Dorotam. The point is that what happens immediately before the line, again, he emphasizes that it's Lukota Eidut, right, which is uh, which is parallel to the language used up here as well. What it seems to me is that if we were thinking literally, that the parsha of Shabbos precedes the parsha uh, precedes the giving of Lukot because it's God's it's a, it's a place in which God establishes an eternal covenant between the Jews and God that's not conditional. And so it's the antithesis to the whole struggle about the uh, whole struggle about the ego. And it also is not conditional in the Mishkan either, right? It's not been built on something tangible in the world existing. It's the whole world. The whole world um, stands as a model of a permanent bris uh, between God and the between God and the Jewish people. I think that's the most brito bridolam. I think that's the most logical thing. Um, and maybe, right, you can say maybe that's what God told Moshe just before he sent them down. Um, or you can say that it's just the Torah's way of understanding that when God gives Moshe the uh, Moshe the Torah, what he's doing is reaffirming the brit of Matan Torah. Okay, but all the other explanations, uh, I think, have failed to really account well for why Shabbos happened previously, and maybe you don't like my explanation at all, uh, at all either. Uh, okay, the Torah more has uh, the kind of explanation that I really don't like, but I have to ask, uh, put it in, and probably some of you will like it. Uh, right? He says that the whole purpose of Kachalato is that God gives Moshe the Torah exactly when he finishes teaching it to him, and therefore there was no excuse for the Jews saying Moshe was late, because Moshe wasn't stolen. He was ready. He came right, He came down exactly at the first moment he had it. This is the kind of explanation that doesn't appeal to me, and if I wanted to you know, attack it on its own terms, I would say no. It should, then it should say, Kachalato, that God gave Moshe the Luchot, Exactly at the moment that he's done, it says Kichalotol like his bedroom. Okay. You, know, so you should know somebody said you can uh, you can you can buy it out if you want. Um, the make the Varzin Siv has another uh, has another interesting um, claim about the structure of the Pesukah. I'm not sure if he's entirely right about what you expect from biblical grammar, um, although the Siv biblical grammar author that I did. Um, but he points out that regardless of whether it's what you expect or not, the structure of the pasuk is odd. It, he, it's the sentence structure that I use often, but that and that uh, my wife and all the people read they're totally advanced trying to get me to change out, which is you know the sort of uh, copy thing where it's after you give after you give an opening sentence, then you put in the parent a parentheses that was really that was really important to know really before you started. He gave to Moshe uh, when he right, when he had finished speaking with the Messiah, right? That's why are you telling this story out of order? Just say, when he finished speaking with Moshe at Sinai, he gave right. He gave him the Torah, right? Why do you say he gave him the Torah before you tell before you tell us what happened immediately before? <clears throat> so the Tiv has a 
They come to teach you that the finishing of the speech was part of the giving. Right? So you can't really understand what he meant to give. Right? It's not that he stopped and therefore he gave. It's that the giving involved stopping. Why? Nesiv has his own interpretation, the way we talked about how in Hasidic um, literature everything is about the psychology of the relationship between, between God and the Jewish people or your individual relationship to God. So Nesiv, basically everything in the Torah is about the, is about the study of Torah. So, right, well, right, so here, what it means that God's finished speaking with him is that he gave Moshe will recall and um, and Moshe did not have to engage in engage in effort uh, anymore to understand to understand Torah. He could just focus. And just naturally, the Torah just flowed out of him. Um, okay, that's his understanding of Matana. I don't know that I'm so convinced by this. There's a whole general question I wrote about Torah some years ago, uh, where I, I think it might have been within it. I don't remember exactly where this is the the irony that Moshe Rabbeinu knows all of Torah and therefore never gets the fundamental rabbinic experience of Torah, which is being creative. And I'm not sure if you know everything already, you can't be creative. Uh, we'll have to talk about whether that's true or not. But I think you can use it as Tim's reading. And it's his reading would say that if we, if we go back to Rafersh's thing and saying that God gives Moshe the Torah and stopping to speak to Moshe is part of that because he gives him the Torah with instructions, right? The joke that... Um, Say yeshiva, right? That sometimes when they give you your smicha, right? Not always a joke, right? Some smicha give you authority to uh, give you authority to issue halachic rulings, and some smicha come with your teacher's uh, phone number on the back, and right, and they say, right, yes, if you ever get a difficult question, go look it up, right? Uh, right. When I finally got my smicha, um, some years, right, Deborah uh, made a big a big production, uh, turn, you know, turn, look, turn around, look at the back to see if it was a phone number, um, on it, um, on it or not. Um, so um, we could just say that, you know, so giving Moshe the Torah silently. For the record, it's blank on the back. And it was a joke. And we just broke the, we broke the frame now, so we can check again. <laughs> but yes, thank you. Um, so the, because it could be that, of course, none of them were willing to take my calls, but we'll try that. We'll try that to, uh, to, assume, to assume it was that. Um, the, um, we could... So I, I guess I guess the real question is was everybody else's blank too? Right, you have to know, right? You have, you have to know, right? We should require, right? I guess rabbis to put their smicha not on the wall, right? But to hang it right from the ceiling, so you can right, in a clear frame, you can look at, at the front and the back. Otherwise, that's the easy thing. Any case, uh, so the um, we can say that right that God giving the the luchot to Moshe silently, right? The silence is part of the giving because if you give somebody the Torah while you're still speaking, you're still giving them instructions, and it's clear you never intend. To stop giving them instructions, that's not really a gift. Right? That would be another way of reading the whole thing together. Okay, right. So we have a whole series of explanations, but I'm not sure that any of them is really uh, is really satisfactory because there's no real point where we're happy saying that God and Moshe ever finished speaking, because the conversation about the eagle also goes on later, and the conversation about Torah doesn't fit doesn't fit literally or temporally, there aren't really good explanations. So at the end of all this, we're still not we still have a great explanation and chronology of what it is the very toe means that God and Moshe stopped doing before he got the Luchot. Okay, so now I want to point out another ambiguity, which I think um, 
We hit that briefly above, but not really. Uh, well, now I want to do it by now, which is we're going to go back to Bereshis. Um And in Bereshis, so God says, am I, uh, how do you come from what, I, what, I, what I'm going to do? And he gives an explanation as to why he won't hide from, he won't hide from Abraham the, um, he won't hide, he won't hide from Abraham the, um, the, uh, the, the destruction of stone. And then, right, the, the, the people leave Abraham and they go to stone. Now, Abraham will dead will make it to Hashem. And Abraham is still standing before God. So the famous book is Rashi and Rashbam, whether it's really Abraham is still standing before God, when was Abraham before God, right? And that goes, right, or, or with, right? So one explanation is that it's really God is still standing before Abraham, but there's a tikkun so frame of Rashi that uh, it wouldn't be polite to say that God was still standing before Abraham. Really, Abraham is still standing, really, but really that's what the case is. The other explanation is that Abraham is, right, um, is actually still standing before God, even though we've had this long interregnum, because it's the scene that begins at the beginning of Parshish Lepa, so when the angels appear. When God's talking about Yerushan Lebron, which is interrupted by the angels, fine. Okay, then Abraham speaks, gets up the, uh, before God, and they have the whole really long conversation um, about the, the bargaining conversation about stone. At the end of the conversation, right, you know, conversations get shorter and shorter, and Abraham always has the introduction, well, I can't believe I'm having the audacity to speak this way, but maybe it's maybe it's three, maybe twenty. Uh, each time God just says, "Nope, you're great. I won't destroy them if they're twenty. And finally, God says, "I won't destroy them before they're ten. And then it says, "Vayelech Hashem Kasher Kila L'Daber El Abraham." So God leaves Kasher Kila L'Daber El Abraham. Here it doesn't say L'Daber Im Abraham. It's Kasher Kila L'Daber El Abraham. But let's note that same right. There's the same. Um, Substantive claim, right? That God left when he finished speaking with Abraham. But there's an ambiguity here, which I think is central to that whole parsha, which is God leaves when he finishes speaking with Abraham. But does that mean that Abraham was finished speaking too? Means, right, says that God left when he finished speaking to Abraham. But does that mean that Abraham was finished speaking with him or that God left because he was no longer interested? Is speaking with Abraham, right? So there's ambiguity whenever you say, when you say a conversation ended, does the conversation end because one or the other party chose to leave the conversation, or does it end because the parties mutually agree to leave the conversation? If we take that back to the beginning of uh, of, of this week, so now we can look and say, so God gives to Moshe right, when he finishes speaking with him. So in the same way that we don't know at this stage who the giver is, the truth is that we don't know who ends the conversation here. You have a number of possibilities. It could be that he gave that he gave to Moshe when Moshe finished speaking with him. And if you think that it's a conversation about the ego, that's what it has to be, because the last words in the conversation of the ego uh, are Moshe is not right. Our Moshe is not God. All it says by Nachem Hashem, God changes mind. He doesn't say that God said anything. Or it could be. That he changed, right? That he gave to Moshe when he, God, finished speaking with Moshe, which seems, uh, which can either be God finished telling Moshe the Torah, or he can speak with a very toe the way, uh, right? The Midrash and Refresh, um, that is, um, say is that when they're speaking together about the Torah, it could be they were speaking together and that one or the other wanted to keep speaking together, and the other one said, No, right? We were speaking together, and now I'm not speaking with you, so the conversation is over. Right, so I wanted to put up that ambiguity, and with that ambiguity in mind, I now wanted to go to the um, to the uh, story of Moshe, of Moshe in Rabbi Akiva's 
here in Akiva's classroom that um, probably many of you are familiar with. Uh, here's the story, right? Let's take a look at let's take a look at it um, quickly. So Ravuda says it's Ravuda's name of Rav, and Moshe goes up to Lamarom, Evans, he finds God tying the letters onto the Otios, and he says, God, who is restraining you? The way in which this is generally understood, I think I can have it in Rashi here, how do you have it in Rashi, is who is restraining you? So who is saying that you can't give the Torah yet? You have to tie the crown onto letters before you give the Torah. And that means that this scene takes place just before God gives Moshe the Luchot. Okay, so God says to him, there's a person, right, and many years from now, who's right, named Akiva, who's going to learn enormous heaps of halachos from each of the points of the crowns of the letters. We're going to send out the crowns of the letters are, the tag, are things like the tagim that Rashi talks about. That's a whole separate conversation. Um, and that's I have to put them on to the Shabbat Akiva, who is preventing you from giving the Torah as is. So Mashur Abinah says, show him to me. And God says, you know, turn back. And he shows up in Akiva's classroom famously and doesn't understand anything. He gets depressed. Um, the students ask, um, the students, uh, the students, kind of the students get to one thing in Akiva's classroom and they ask Akiva, what's your source? And Akiva says, Alakal Moshe and Sinai. It's just a tradition from Moshe, and Moshe is, uh, Moshe is, um, is, is, is removed, right? Is, um, his depression is relieved. He goes in front of God and he says, why are you giving the Torah through me instead of through Rabbi Akiva? And God tells him, be silent. And then he says, you showed me the Torah, show me his reward. And he shows him Rabbi Akiva's flesh being weighed in the marketplaces. And he says, and God says to him, be silent. This is what came up in Machshava uh, before me. Um, okay. So here's what I want to say. This is a conversation between God and Moshe that takes place just before God gives Moshe the Torah. What I think this Midrash is based on is they say, you know what? None of the other dialogue between God and Moshe that we find in the Torah fits well as an explanation of what, of what it is that Kechala told, the very Tol means. So they said there must be some other conversation that is not in the Torah, that happens between God and Moshe just before I gave him the Luchot, and this is the conversation they came up with. Right, so this is right, this is a, a rabbinic filling of the gap, right, what was, what is Kechalotol the very toe? And this is pretty dramatic because, right, how does Kechalotol the very toe end? It ends with God telling Moshe, be quiet. So the conversation doesn't, it's not, right, it's, it can be both of the very toe that are speaking together, and yet, that it's God making the decision. Because what God, right, and I think that's how the rabbis are reading this, is that God gives Moshe the Torah when God finishes speaking with him. It is a conversation, but it's God's decision to end the conversation. And he ends the conversation by giving Moshe the Torah. And it's a very dramatic end. He tells him, right, uh, so it's a really weird conversation where it seems the entire purpose of the conversation is to is to yield the point where God tells Moshe this conversation is over. Right? That's a really interesting kind of conversation you have. Right? Where, the, right? where the whole purpose of the conversation is to get somebody to ask a question which you will then refuse to answer. So I want to leave right now. I think that, that I think is the, the first level of understanding what that story, uh, what that story really means.
I want to give credit this way. Bought last week a book called Crowns. I'll stop the screen for a short moment. Uh, called the um, the Crowns of the Letters by uh, by Ari Khan, um, which I'm going to plug it. Uh, but as I read the chapter um, this this Shabbos, uh, last Shabbos on the um, on on this story, which I had thought you know when I, uh, the way I, that there was not so much more I could say about the story and. There were several things in the chapter that really opened up the story for me in a new way, um, and led me to led me to this conclusion. Although it's not something he says, and I'm going to give you one thing that he says about the story, which I think is also uh, beautiful, and I had not seen, I think, um, anywhere near anywhere near it as as in detail as he had. And that will also help us understand the story, and that's probably all we can do tonight. And uh, now the story is new again, uh, we could revisit it in the future. So the thing that the Khan points out well two things that Khan points out really well. One is he says, So Moshe sees Rabbi Akiva in the classroom, and then he asks God, uh, he asks God to show me his car, and God shows Rabbi Akiva's flesh being weighed in the marketplace. But those are not that's not how Rabbi Akiva's life does not go directly from the classroom to his flesh being weighed in the marketplace. What happens, as we learn in Yamar Brokos, is that when Rabbi Akiva is being taken out. Or teaching Torah in public, right? With Rabbi Akiva is being taken out. He's reading Kriya Shema, and they're combing his flesh, and it's and Rabbi Akiva is being the Kabel of Olchem Shemayim. And the students say, "Really? Now you're accepting the go to heaven?" And he says, "Basically, all my life, I was right, all my life I was in agony about this pasuk. It says, right, this is my drasha. The Chol Nashecha, Pilu Notim, right? The Avata, Avata, the Shem Lukata, Love God, the Chol Lukav, the Chol Nashecha, the Chol Neodeta." How do I know, right? How do, what does it mean to love God the whole Nashika, even if you have to sacrifice your life? And it says, when, when will I fulfill this? Now that it comes to my, my mind, will I not fulfill it? And so he dies saying, and a heavenly voice comes out. And now I'm going to just ask a couple of questions and leave it to you. You can email me, or we can say out and tell you what you think it means. So, guess what happened to that? At that moment, the angels ask the same question as Moshe Rabbeinu. They say, Do Torah Bezus this is this is reward. What happens to Rabbi Akiva? And God does not say to them, "Be silent." God gives them an answer, which seems basically to say, "Don't worry, he's going to Olam Haba." So why does God show Moshe? Why does God show Moshe right, not answer Moshe Rabbeinu's question the way He answered the angels' question? That's A. B. Why does God? Why Why does God? Um, Show Moshe the scene of Rabbi Akiva after this, after this powerful scene where Rabbi Akiva shows you that he is actually accepting the martyrdom in some ways, even with joy and certainly with beauty. Instead, right, God shows him the scene afterwards, which has no beauty at all, which is just horror. But in between where God shows Moshe Rabbi Akiva in his classroom, God shows Moshe with his flesh being weighed in the marketplace, he doesn't show Rabbi Akiva saying this, this line of right, I always thought when I was going to fulfill this pasuk. So God seems to be going out of his way to right, make Moshe ask him a question, not give him an answer, and not even help him understand what might be an answer. Now, what Rakan points out, which I had, which I had, I think had not gotten at all, was that in case you missed the story, right? So the narrator of the story, Maranapos, wants you to know and remember that this is a story about the Rabbi Akiva, whose soul departed on the word Echad. Right, because of that was so court critical to him. Because how does God introduce Rabbi Akiva? He says, Adam Echad Yesh. 
And what are they learning about? They're learning in Akira's classroom is Kevan Shehigil Devar Echad. Right, so the language of the story is designed to send you back to Brachos, even though Moshe Rabbeinu never gets to Brachos. So that seems to me a very cool mystery to try and that can add, a, add great depth to this to this um, to this uh, okay, Another thing which I did know, um, I knew it from Vesper, that Rakan roots it back to the Maral. The Maral doesn't make the particular Gemara Brachos explicit, but I think uh, probably correctly is obviously had in mind is that God says to Moshe, "Kach Alav and the Kakalab uh, is the language that Rashi uses in the Midrash to say that God originally thought of the world as existing. He wanted the world to exist only in Din. That's why the word, the name for God in Bereshit Perk Aleph is a Lukin. And then he realizes the world can't survive without Din and Rafi together. So the, the, in the starting in the um, the recreation of the Gaiden story, is always Hashem and Lukin, because Hashem and Lukin together is Rafi and Din. And so the morale of Desser all say that what happens to Rabbi Akiva is Rabbi Akiva has the opportunity to live in the world the way in which it was uh, God originally thought of creating it, the Alam Machshavah world. And there's another connection between the stories that, uh, that God gives him an answer, gives an answer which sends us to Rabbi Akiva and yet doesn't tell him, doesn't tell, doesn't show him what really makes Rabbi Akiva explicable. The last thing I'm going to say um, is that I think there's another tension which is not uh, filled out, which is that um, God says, Moshe, I'm giving the Torah because there are all these, there are all these, uh, with the crown, I can't give the Torah without the crown, so that he is going to derive all these things from the crowns. And yet at the end of the, the end, right, what satisfies, um, what satisfies Moshe is that a student asks Rabbi Akiva, how do you know this halacha? And Rabbi Akiva doesn't say, I got it from this crown. Rabbi Akiva says, I got it from Moshe Mishinai. So what's the point of attaching the crowns to the letters? If, in fact, at the end of the day, A, the letters aren't comprehensive, even the crowns of the letters aren't comprehensive, there are still details that the only way you can know them is by saying, and why do we bother having the crowns, right? What is it, right? Why don't they get anything So there's this, right, there's this deep tension in it. In the written virtue, I wanted to suggest that a really powerful thing here is that maybe the Akiva students can't get anything from the crowns either. Maybe the crowns are just there for Rabbi Akiva, but at the end of the day, right, right, at the end of the day, Rabbi Akiva can't show that when he derives from the letters that no one else gets are from the crowns, the students don't get it either. And so that's in some way what, what, um, what works for sure. But for me, the key things to get out of here is understand that this story is a, is a an attempt to resolve the problem of what does Kichal told the very toe, in which they come up with a a dialogue which they think this is the thing, right? This is the thing that Moshe Rabbeinu had to understand, that God thought Moshe Rabbeinu had to understand before you could give him the Torah. Um, you can decide whether this story takes place before or after the Egel And that it's a fact, right? They play in both Kichalotol and the very toe by saying that it has to be a conversation, but it has to be that God ends the conversation and this is very dramatically by saying that God says, be silent. Um, and that in addition to God telling Moshe to be silent, God also doesn't give Moshe Rabbeinu all the evidence. So it's something Moshe Rabbeinu has to understand, but he also has to be able to figure out for himself. If God told it to him somehow, then it wouldn't work. Thanks for joining us for another episode from the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode. Thank you.